Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. I could have backed off, <laughs> but that ain't racing. Gave it all I could. I didn't leave nothing laying on the table. Took it all the way back to the racetrack. Lord, if you just get me back these 5,000 miles, I got to go and get me back home. I promise you one thing, I won't be back. Don't you ever forget, I'm a daddy too. Well, you should have seen it, that wreck from my side. That ride back from Darlington, from that day forward, I made it my life's commitment to do whatever I had to do to become a Winston Cup driver. Hello and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, where Richard Petty is still the king. <laughs> <laughs> Long live the king. All right, Steve. Kyle Busch won at Fontana last week for his 53rd Cup victory. Right. 
and however many Xfinity wins he has and however many truck wins he has, Steve had added up to 200. 200. Well, there was uh, a lot of noise made about that. Some said that with that 200 win, he had now tied Richard Petty for the all-time most in NASCAR. But come on. (laughs) A slight difference here. Yeah. Uh, As I've said many times before, and others have said just as well, Richard's victory were all on the Cup Series, all on one series. And Kyle's have been spread out over three series. So effectively, the argument goes, he's not tied with Richard Petty. And if you uh, think about it, that argument bears a lot of weight. And I do want to say one thing, however. Kyle Busch is headed for the Hall of Fame. We know it. There is absolutely no denying that. Right. And so the bottom line is both he and Richard are part of NASCAR's history. And in the end... Isn't that what it's all about? That's the way it should be. The bottom line for me is the fact that not once has Kyle Busch said himself, this puts me up there with Richard Petty. Yeah. I believe that Kyle has handled it fairly well because he has not tried to compare himself to Richard Petty. He's just doing his deal and putting up video game numbers. Right. And if people don't like that, you know, some of the reactions that fans have had to him No wonder he has a bad outlook at times. For him, it's just common sense to keep your mouth shut. (laughs) (laughs) Kyle knows what he's done, but I think he also realizes that for him to start comparing himself to Richard Petty is just going to infuriate uh, the fans even more than they already are. That's number one. So that's just common sense on his part. And I credit him for it. I really do. Richard Petty is the king. He will always be the king. And Kyle Busch is a just a phenomenal Best talent. Best of his generation. And let's leave it at that. Right. So, Steve, in this week's episode, we've got the third and final installment of the interview that I did with Jeff Bodine. Two things stand out about that. Him running Hoosiers. Right. And the whole tire war episode. That was a mess. And you cannot talk to Jeff Bodine without thinking or bringing up that truck wreck at Daytona in February of 2000. Very, very Cannot do it. Yeah, very frightening. Very frightening. Uh, up where I saw it from up in the press box, I joined a lot of guys that were up there that we were thinking, Jeff is going to be seriously hurting this thing. Uh, it turns out that wasn't the case, but there was a very serious aftermath. My re- initial reaction was, if he is just seriously hurt in this accident, he's going to be lucky. Right. I thought I was watching somebody, you know, take his final ride, right. so to speak. You weren't the only one. Yeah. So, in the second segment, I've got an interview with Brock Beard, who is the author of the biography that just came out recently in the last couple of months on J.D. McDuffie. So, I'm looking forward to that conversation with him because, Steve, I had talked to J.D. right before he left for that northern swing. I think they went to Michigan first, and then he was going to go on over to Watkins Glen. And, Steve, I'll never forget that. I I had called the shop to set up an interview, and he said, get back with me after Watkins Glen. Mm. That's kind of ironic. Yeah. And finally, we got Patreon support from Ryan Brewer this week. So, Ryan, thank you so much for stepping up to the plate. And (laughs) here is a short clip of our Patreon-only segment in which we discussed run-ins that we might or might not have had with fans and or drivers. At the end of the Bristol Spring Race, Jeff Gordon got into the back of Rusty Wallace on the last lap, wound up winning the race. Happens? Yeah, it happens. Sure. But, I mean, if you're running second and you want to win the race, you do what you have to do, short of plowing the guy over. Right. Especially at Bristol at that time. At Bristol. Yes. So I wrote a column to that effect. I said, you do what you have to do on a short track. Steve, (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you, that was by far the most reaction that I ever got out of any column. That's back in the days when people faxed letters (laughs) letters to the office. And it was like that stupid fax machine was constantly <laughs> brr, brr, brr. <laughs> got over a hundred faxes. Wow. And to be honest, it was about evenly split. You know, yeah. some saying, yeah, I agree totally. Jeff's great driver, blah, blah, blah. But Steve, the other half, they got kind of 
Uh, they personal, got, huh? they got kind of ugly. Uh-huh. One guy wrote that the only reason that I was employed by Winston Cup Scene was the company's requirement to have an anal orifice on staff. Boy, how do you know that? Oh, never mind. Now, no. once, <laughs> once I figured out what anal orifice meant, <laughs> I was kind of offended. But I got another one that began, dear fat ass. <laughs> okay. At that time, we had our pictures along with our columns, and yeah, I was I was kind of hefty. The guy, I guess, just called it as he saw it, you know. But dear fat ass, and as soon as I saw that, I knew immediately <laughs> that the rest of that letter was not going to be real complimentary. <laughs> <Do you laughs> and think? it wasn't. And it wasn't. Trust me. Now, Steve, can you begin to believe that somebody would dare call me fat ass? Uh, uh, easy i see the glint in your eye take it easy there bud plead the fifth (laughs) patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast you can get access to the exclusive content for as little as a dollar a month you can do more if you want and obviously anything would be appreciated also if you'd rather do a one-time show of support paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast Now, in 1994, you go to Pocono, you sit on the pole, you win the race, and then four races later, you do the same thing at Michigan. How big a deal was that for you? Well, that was great. Uh, you know, we won the all-star race at Charlotte. Right, yeah. And that was our first win with the team. And, you know, we had the Hoosier tires, and uh, Bill France Jr. told me to run the Hoosier tires. Nobody, no one knew that. Really? But, but that was part of our deal with Excite Batteries. But And so before I signed a deal, I called him up. I said, Bill, I got this deal. And part of the deal is to run Hoosier Tires. He said, man, I want you to do it. Because Goodyear was under maybe a hostile takeover. And he said, man, if somebody buys them out, I need tires for my race cars. So you run those tires, developing a good tire in case we need them. So I didn't do that on my own. It was I was told to do it by Bill France Jr., and so we did. And in the beginning, we weren't doing the testing for Bob Newton. And the tires weren't, they were okay, but they weren't really good all the time. I said, Bob, let me do the testing for you. And we'll, we'll come up with a great tire. So I started testing for him. We tested more times that year than we raced. Oh, man, we were on no the road kidding. all the time. Wow. Oh, man, we developed with, with Hoosier and Bob and myself, my team, we developed some really, really good tires. And they were fast, and uh, you know we won the all-star race with them, and that was great because the race shop that Alan built was just behind the speedway, and I got to do the Polish victory lap in his honor, and you know what a great that it couldn't uh, the first win couldn't have happened at a better place for that team and myself, and we went on and won a bunch more races. Should have won about fourteen, but we had a lot of engine problems, failures because doing all the testing, we just wore everything out. Oh my gosh. Wore the engines out, the parts out, and the people <laughs> yeah. out. And unfortunately, at the end of the year, well, fortunately, Goodyear didn't get bought out. But unfortunately, uh, NASCAR didn't need Hoosier. And they said, okay, Bob, we don't need you. We're not going to run you next year. And so that was really sad. It was really sad because he worked hard and spent a lot of money developing those tires. By doing that, it forced Goodyear to build a better tire. So we helped everybody by running those tires. People didn't realize it. You know, nobody, Bill France didn't tell anybody that he told me to run those tires. And, and so the next year, Goodyear was pretty mad at me. So they they built me some special tires. <laughs> you wouldn't want to put them on your dump truck. They were bad. Really? And, yeah. Wow. And, you know, I was going through divorce. And, yeah. Uh, people thought it was me. and But I had friends that knew it wasn't me. And so we... We suffered through the first year. I said, well, they won't do it again. And while they start out doing it again, I went to, to Bill and asked him, hey, can, can we have a meeting? We were going to California for the first race. And uh, so we had a meeting before the race. He had all his people in there. And Gary Nelson was working for him then. And I said, Bill, uh, I got a problem. You know, you do remember telling me to run to Hoosier Tires, don't you? Well, he didn't like he's Yeah, I do. And he didn't like saying that, but he did. Well, they're building me some bad tires. 
no, they can't be. We pick all our tires every week. I said, no, no, you know, you only pick the first three sets out. No, we pick them all out. He looked at Gary. Gary said, no, Bill, we only picked the first three sets out. The rest Goodyear picks out. His jaw dropped. So he went to Stu Grant and told him, fessed up, that he told me to run those tires. I went to Phil Homer, who was a good friend of mine before that, and I told him, and he just kept saying, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? They took every tire they already mounted for me for that race back and gave me all different tires. And we didn't have any bad tires after that. So, uh, and that really cost me a lot of money, sponsorships, and a lot of heartache. But uh, I still wouldn't change any of it because, you know, we helped everybody by forcing Goodyear to make a better tire. That's the real story. And I'm writing a book. It's all going to be in there. You're writing a book, really? Yeah, well, yeah, I got to have a book. And When's that going to come out? Well, I'm not in any big hurry because once it comes out, they probably won't let me in any racetracks <laughs> anymore. <laughs> well, I'm just going to tell the truth. Yeah. You know, when you write, when you talk, and when yeah. you write, you're supposed to tell the truth. Well, I'm not out to hurt anybody, so I'm yeah. not going to name a lot of names. That's not the intent, but I want to tell the truth about what's happened in my career with NASCAR and, well, before that, too, but... Uh, because some of the things aren't real pretty, but uh, so it'll be a pretty interesting book. <laughs> well, I can't wait to read it. And Jeff, you've already mentioned it, but the 2000 Craftsman Truck Series race at Daytona, I have seen many, many, many wrecks at racetracks over the years and certainly on YouTube, but that is the first one that made me physically ill because I watched it happen. Do you remember anything at all about the wreck? <laughs> yeah, I remember... Uh right up to it and right up to hitting the wall uh you know we were fast we, we were gonna win that darn race we had a fast truck uh and uh i had a pit so that put me behind everybody but i came up and caught the front pack and kirk bush was driving a truck for jack ralston and yeah he and two other guys were racing pretty hard and I caught him, and I said, well, I can pass these guys. I told my crew, I said, I can pass these guys anytime. I'm just being careful. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the next lap, coming through the trial, I was just kind of sitting outside of, behind Kirk Bush and the two trucks ahead of him. Uh, the, and I can't think of the names. I'm sorry. The one yeah. boy cut down a little bit. Kirk touched his rear bumper, got him sideways. And, I, of course, I saw it. I said, well, I'm going to get through here before he he comes up and hits the wall well he went down and hit another truck and i didn't see that other truck yeah and well when he hit him it turned them both right in front of me and uh we're going about 190 we're going faster than the cars were that day we didn't have restricted plates it was so much fun yeah and uh until (laughs) yeah that threw me up in the fence and uh you know thank goodness for the the barriers they have the big steel cables that kept me from going through the fence and killing people. I, I think about nine people were hurt with some debris. But that fence isn't race car friendly. It cut the front of the truck right off at the firewall. The, the engine flew down the track. It ripped the top of the roll cage off. And uh, so I'm flying down the track, flipping and bouncing. Another vehicle hit me, spun me around. And, and I'm basically sitting there, you know, naked as a jaybird, just sitting in my seat. Yeah. With no protection. Well, the only the only protection and the best protection I had was the good Lord. He was down there. He he protected me and, because there's no way I should have survived that accident. Oh no! Uh, that, Absolutely the videos, not. The still pictures of it. I mean, it was yeah. just it was one you can't survive. And I mean, I ended up laying on a racetrack, my upper body in fire. Yeah, I have pictures of that, and uh, so there's no question. The Lord saved me that day, and uh, I don't remember the crash. I remember hitting the wall. The lights were out then, and when they came to get me out there, I wasn't breathing. They undid my seatbelt. I started breathing. Wow. Of course, I thanked all the safety workers. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, so, yeah, great experience. And, and you know, I've told the story before. During the accident, my father came to me, and he looked great. He was sick when he passed, but he looked great. And I said, looked at him and said, Dad, I'm coming to see you. He said, no, it's not time to have more to do. Wow. And so that that's proof to me that the Lord was there with me and protected me and had a reason why to protect me. He, he said, I have more to do in life. And 
and he's led me to do some pretty incredible things. So I'm very thankful. Was retirement ever an option during your recovery, or were you pretty much focused on returning to the seat the whole time? Retirement? What? I've never heard that word. <laughs> I've never heard that word. You know, yeah. no, I thought I was going to race forever. Yeah. You know, you just don't think about when it's going to end. And uh, it ended pretty like I said, pretty abruptly with that accident, my my career changed immediately to just part time. And but no, yeah, I never thought of retiring. I mean, things are going good, and I had a good opportunity with Joe Bessie, and so I thought that was just going to go on for several more years. But uh, so when it happened, you know, yeah, I didn't want to quit racing. You know, I went racing two months later with with Joe Bessie and. I should have been racing. I had a vision problem. If if the car wiggled, my, everything kept wiggling. <laughs> if I moved ahead, good night. I stopped and nothing. Everything kept moving. So that was pretty bad. It took eleven months for that to go away. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I just I just thought I was going to race for many more years, but it didn't work out that way. And you know, I'm I don't wish it done any other way because a lot of great things have happened for me, with me, to me, and I've done a lot of really super things. I'm married, have a great wife, Lori, and have four granddaughters and two sons, and things are great. Now, what are you up to these days? Are you still involved in the bobsled program? Well, no. You know, we started at 92, the bobsleds, yeah. uh, built, designed, built, and maintained them for our uh, World Cup and Olympic athletes. They won medals. They won more races, medals, world championships, during our time doing it than uh, they ever had. We stopped in 2010. Another uh, sponsor with a lot of money came in and, and kind of pushed us out, but it was okay. We had a long run with the project, and we did more than we uh, ever thought we were going to do for our athletes. Uh, you know, we never sold them. They used them free. We had a lot of sponsors that helped us, and the, the biggest sponsor ended up being Wheeling Engineering. You know, they do the yeah. lights. Yeah. For the racetrack in NASCAR, they sponsor series, and uh, Phil Kurz was the leader in that, became a super friend of ours. And uh, I actually introduced Whelan through Phil in the NASCAR when yeah. I owned the seven team. He, uh, Whelan ended up on our C panel, on our race car. And from there, they just kept building a relationship with NASCAR. And unfortunately, Phil passed away, and we really miss him And uh, because he was a big part of my career in racing. But then he and Whelan really, really uh, were a huge part in our of uh, the Bodine Bobsled project. And without them, we we couldn't have accomplished what we what we have. Uh, so we're not doing it anymore. Uh, I actually built a, a bobsled to be used in Paralympic use because they're trying to get it as a Paralympic sport. But, wow. Okay. Uh, they haven't agreed on the on the the protocol of athletes. And uh, so I ended up building 10 of these sleds. There's nothing like them in the world. And actually, China bought them for training. Jeff, how would you like to be remembered by race fans? Oh, my goodness. How, <laughs> but ask that question before, how do I want to be remembered? Well, uh, you know, that's tough to answer. I, I don't, you know, I'm, <laughs> people are remembered in a lot of different ways. And, uh, and eventually people put remembering you. <laughs> you know, my family, of course, I want my granddaughters and my sons and my wife and all those relatives. I want to remember me as what they know me by. And, uh, and they know me and they've been around me a long time. So however they remember me, I remember me is fine with me. Race fans, that's a tough one. Uh, what I've discovered is since I haven't been racing, more fans like me. <laughs> They'll come up and say, man, yeah, I remember you. I said, okay, uh, you're for Are you cheer for your girl? Well, yeah. <laughs> but I like you now. That's good. That's good. That means wow. I'm, I'm okay, I guess. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell anybody how to remember me. I mean, gee whiz, I'm going to be around for a few more years. So uh, I'm not thinking about it really, but no, you can't. However people remember me, that's fine with me. You know, it's, uh, I'm not going to try to tell people how I want to be remembered because uh, everyone has their own opinion, own idea, and I have mine. Hey, I think I'm a pretty nice guy. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs>
For children with chronic medical conditions, Victory Junction means friends, fun, freedom. That's because we provide a medically safe environment where kids who live in a world of hospitals and doctor's visits can laugh, play, and discover all they can be, all at no cost to their families. Victory Junction inspires confidence, builds self-esteem, and changes the life of every camper who comes through our gates. Find out how you can change a child's life. Go to victoryjunction.org. Steve, I think when people remember Jeff Bodine as a car owner, they remembered at least two things in particular. Number one, they remember the fact that he bought the team from Alan Quickie. And second, I believe that they remember the fact that he was on Hoosiers in 1994. He was kind of their standard bearer. You know, that opened up a can of worms again. Yeah. Because there was the very, very famous tire wars in 1988 and 1989 that you know left a lot of damage in its wake. Well, yeah, absolutely. The tire wars began in 1988 when a fellow named Bob Newton from Indiana came into a NASCAR Winston Cup competition with his very small Hoosier racing tire operation. Now, Hoosier had already made a name for itself in the Midwest and short track events. They were very, very prominent there. So to make the move into the Winston Cup was a big step for Hoosier, especially that at one time I think they had uh, 18 full-time employees involved in racing tires, and Goodyear had 365. So nobody really thought much about Hoosier being on board, but Hoosier had at least one advantage. (laughs) They were cheaper. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there you go. The tires cost us, and that was an attractive thing to underfinanced team. But here's what happened. Hoosiers proved to be pretty darn good at some track. When they entered NASCAR, they'd never been on a super speedway. And lo and behold, with Neil Bonnet driving for the Raymock team, Hoosier won Richmond and Rockingham in consecutive weeks for its first super speedway victory. That turned a lot of heads. And from that point on, teams would take a look at Hoosier and compare it to Goodyear and see which one would be better for a certain track. A lot of times, they picked Hoosier over Goodyear. NASCAR had to let all this happen because it did not want to be involved in any antitrust events. So they had to let Hoosier on board. They'd done that before, by the way. Firestone was very prominent in NASCAR in the early years, along with Goodyear. So there was a precedent set. So Hoosier stayed around. Now, sometimes they had the better tire, and sometimes Goodyear did. In the first 16 races of 1988, Hoosier won eight of them. But thereafter, they won only one out of 13 to finish out the season with nine victories in one year. But it was a crazy year. Yes, it was a crazy year. You mentioned Neil Bonnet winning the races at Richmond and Rockingham. But then later in the year, there's a pretty famous photo of Neil being extricated from the wreckage of his car. I believe it was at Charlotte where he broke his leg. And this wasn't a tire war based on price. There were some drivers that were getting hurt. Yeah, the, the, the issue was this. When Hoosier and Goodyear would go to a track, they each prepared tires they thought were most suitable for that track. And most of the time, the drivers went with the softer tire. It had great grip. It was fast. Now, it didn't last as long as a hard tire. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Many of the accidents that went on during that year were because of tire failure. And one particular one was in the Winston of 1988, which was uh, won by Goodyear. Goodyear won it. But five days later, Goodyear pulled out of the 600. And the reason they did that was they still had that same tire that they planned to use for the 600, but they saw Ricky Rudd injure himself in the Winston when air pressure failed. And the tire failed, and he suffered a serious wreck. They weren't going to take any chances with drivers' lives, so they pulled out of the 600, which was almost an all-Hoosier field. Now, didn't Bill Elliott also wreck during practice, maybe qualifying for the 1989 Daytona 500? It seems to me like I remember Jody Ridley driving the car in that race. Yeah. Here's what happened in 1989. 
uh, Goodyear came back and started the 1989 season with the radial tire. This had never been put in racing before. Now, what the radial tire did was it retained its shape uh, throughout the race and basically retained the same air pressure. And if it passed the NASCAR hoop test, which <laughs> which NASCAR used to measure. The NASCAR what test? Hoop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They measured the circumference of tires. And if they didn't reach a certain level or weren't at the prescribed level, that tire was not allowed. That happened a good year at Pocono. You know, of uh, 1988. Well, the, here they are with the radial tire. Everything looks good. It's Bill Elliott who suffers the crash uh, during practice for the 500 that makes Goodyear rethink what it's going to do and pulls the radial tire away from the Daytona 500 and went back to work on it. So they come back later that year at North Wilkesboro, and again, Goodyear has the radial tire available to the teams. And you should have read some of the reports coming out of the newspapers of that day. After seeing what happened at Daytona where Goodyear had to pull out, media guys were writing that this was going to be terrible at North Wilkesboro. Cars were going to wreck everywhere. Drivers were going to be injured everywhere. This was a dumb move by Goodyear to try to reintroduce a tire that had been pulled from the Daytona 500. But here's what happened. When the race started, the only driver who did not use a radial tire, well, he wasn't the only one, but he was the most prominent driver, who did not use a radial tire was Rusty Wallace. Race started in 10 laps on a short track. He was a lap down to the radial tires. He pulls in a bit and puts on the radial. Give me some radials. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. He's in panic. I'm a believer. So the radials won the day. And Goodyear was so delighted that after the race, all of their employees that were there, including the tire buzzard, posed for a group picture. They were so happy with what the rails had done. And that effectively curbed Hoosier's participation at that time. On May 8th of that year, Bob Newton announced that Hoosier was leaving cup racing. They left in the 89. Now, they stayed in the bushes and nobody paid attention. Because it certainly wasn't, not because of the bushes. It yeah, certainly yeah, wasn't. You can say it. <laughs> well, you take it from there. <laughs> you, I did. <laughs> well, see, that's the reason most of us didn't realize that Hoosiers was back in NASCAR. I mean, God, it was on the Bush series. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh, I oh wait, wait, wait. Hey, I got a knife in my back, oh, man. Come I on. I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> Yeah, he did. How else do you mean it? <laughs> so, Hoosier does make a limited return in the Bush Series beginning in 1991. But then in 1994, they announced that they're coming back. And Jeff Bodine was going to be the flag carrier for Hoosier. And several other teams were going to be using them. At Daytona, got off to a pretty bad start, at least optically. Neil Bonnet and Rodney Orr were both on Hoosier's at Daytona in 1994, and we know what happened with them. But tires evidently weren't a factor in either one of those crashes. No, you're exactly right. The tires were not a factor in either one of those accidents as other events. So, Steve, Loy Allen wins the pole. Rookie Loy Allen wins the pole on Hoosiers, and, of course, that created a big controversy, and people were talking about that. But, basically, Hoosiers' only success that year was with Jeff Bodon. He won the Winston. That's right. And he won a couple other races that we talked about. So that was basically it for Hoosier in 1994. Yeah, you're exactly right. And uh, the limited success, I believe, was primarily based on the finances of the time. It was very difficult for Hoosier, still not a very big company compared to Goodyear, to keep up with Goodyear and its technology. Steve, as I said in the intro, the other thing that really stood out to me about this interview with Jeff Bodine was his description of the truck accident that he had at Daytona in February of 2000. I was in the infield media center and was watching the race on the monitors that we had there. I've seen a lot of wrecks and you have too, but that is the only one that ever made me literally go weak in the knees and almost 
sick at my stomach because I honestly thought that I was watching yeah, somebody, yeah. you know. You weren't yeah, the, the only worst. one who thought that. Uh, up in the press box, things were pretty silent after that accident happened because there was a lot of concern for Jeff's life. Oh, yeah. I mean, the photos, the steel photographs that I've seen of that accident are probably the most dramatic that I've ever seen because you can see Jeff Bodine in the cockpit of that truck just getting tossed around like a rag doll. Well, there was more drama to it. Uh, apparently, when Jeff crashed into the catch finch yeah. up there, some debris flew into the grandstands and some people were hurt. Uh, when I found out about it, uh, I got together with some of the staff members by radio, and we fanned out, went down into the grandstands near the point of impact, and uh, we spread out uh, looking for people to describe what happened to them or what they saw, and uh, we did that. And we were able to report from eyewitnesses what happened to people into the grandstands. Now, there were no serious injuries right. or yeah. anything of that nature, but we were told about some people who were cut or otherwise harmed by flying debris, and that, to me, uh, just added more drama to what we had already seen. Here's a question for you. Other than Jeff Bodine's wreck, what's the biggest, most spectacular crash that you can remember seeing? Oh, man, there have been so many of them. <laughs> Uh, I've got a story about one, however. I was into You have a story? Oh, well, <laughs> I know it doesn't happen often. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, I was in Talladega in 1973, and the only reason I was there was to report for the Ronald Times, of course, but strictly out of curiosity. I hadn't been assigned the race, but I wanted to see this big mammoth track. Nine laps into the spring race there, Ramos Dodd, blew an engine, and spread oil all over the track going into the first turn. About every single car on the track spun out or ran through that oil and got involved in a massive accident. 21 cars, finally. I think it was more than that, but the official total was 21 cars, and among them was the leader, Buddy Baker, who said after he got out of his car, it was the biggest mess he had ever seen. You could see transmissions and engines all over the track. Cale Yarborough also said he went airborne running through that oil and finally came to a stop. He said he patted himself all over to make sure he was all still there. Bobby Allison got into it and he said something quite interesting. He said that wreck would not have been as bad if NASCAR hadn't chosen to start 60 cars 60 in that race at that high speed yes sir oh, 60 man. you can imagine you can imagine how they were so bunched together and everything of that nature with no restrictor plates that <laughs> something like yeah. a blown engine was going to cause mayhem and it did well steve it's funny you mentioned talladega because i've actually got four that i wanted to mention real briefly first was the 1993 diehard 500 at talladega neil bonnet flipped in his return to racing. But the wreck that everybody remembers was Jimmy Horton going all the way over the wall. I remember that. All the way over the wall. That was another issue where some of us thought we might have seen the last of Jimmy. As surprising as it was, Jimmy was not the one who got hurt. I saw Jimmy in the garage right after the wreck, and Steve, he, he was covered in this red Alabama clay. It was one of the darndest things I've ever seen. But the person who was hurt and very nearly paid the price for racing there was Stanley Smith. He was in that same wreck with Jimmy Horton, had a basal skull fracture, the injury that has claimed several people. And it certainly ended Stanley's career because he had some hefty recuperation to do. His daughter, Autumn, actually had to leave the hospital and go compete in the Miss Teen USA contest. Now, the other Talladega wreck that I wanted to mention was another multi-car wreck, and it took place in the 2002 Bush Series race at Talladega. And my brother was in the Army at the time, and he was stationed at nearby Fort Rucker. So I had been telling him, man, you got to come check out a race at Talladega. It's the craziest thing you've ever seen. It's the most exciting thing that you've ever seen. 
So I was in the press box. Doug was on pit road, and I had set him up with a radio that we had. <laughs> and lap nine ten somewhere in there, thirty cars, <laughs> thirty cars wreck on the back stretch. He can't see anything. He doesn't know what's going on other than me hollering on the radio. And for the rest of the race. Everybody else is in the garage, and there's a three-car draft with Jason Keller, Tim Fedewa, and somebody else in the lead car draft, and every minute or so, they'd go by, and you'd wait another minute or so. <laughs> Let's just say that Doug was not impressed. <laughs> Doug was not impressed in the least with that race. So the other two wrecks that I did want to mention, you cannot think about big wrecks without thinking of Michael Waltrip yeah. and Mike Harmon at Bristol. Bristol. I have never seen a car more destroyed than Michael Waltrip's was in that particular wreck. And that was another one. We all wondered what was going to happen next, what we were going to have to write about that we did not want to write about. But Mike came through pretty much unscathed. I was in the infield when Mike Harmon's wreck took place. At the back of the NASCAR transporter, the end of the NASCAR transporter was pointed towards turn one. And I just have this memory of hearing this all of a sudden thump. And that's the best way that you could describe it was just this very hard. Yeah. Everybody, Steve, everybody in that garage started running towards turn two. Right. So when I got there, Mike Harmon was already, already getting out of his car. He stood up in the middle of that crap and walked away. So that was an amazing memory. Hello, I'm Terry Labonte, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Well, first things first, Brock. I got to know how you came up with the idea for JD, the life and death of a forgotten NASCAR legend. Well, you know, it's it's a very good question. You know, JD McDuffie is a driver that has uh, figured prominently in a lot of my work, uh, you know, following teams and drivers that don't get featured that much. And in my mind, uh, JD McDuffie is always the, the Dale Earnhardt of underdogs <laughs> and uh, had very similar background to him, actually. Uh, but for a couple of decisions, um, you know, he would have had a very similar career to the Intimidator and, uh, you know, but there's not as many stories written about him. And I felt that uh, it was long overdue that uh, his account was finally uh, put to print. All right. You brought it up. What were the decisions that were made? It's very interesting. You know, the thing with um, J.D. McDuffie is that he started out, you know, as just as just an owner driver and, and trying to make a name for himself in the Cup Series. And, uh, you know, what uh, the biggest difference I would I would definitely say was, um, you know, Dale Earnhardt uh, finding the connection with Richard Childress and, and perhaps, uh, you know, in that sense, had a very similar background to, to Childress as well as an owner driver. Um, you know, that uh, perhaps at some point J.D. McDuffie could have started a team himself and hired somebody else to drive the car and uh, you know do uh, do things that way but he just loved being an owner driver so much he loved that autonomy and and operating the team himself um and uh and what's tragic of course about that is that uh it was ultimately that decision that uh, that cost him his life Take me through the process of actually putting the book together. I know that you had a lot of input with his family, his daughter, Linda, and of course, his wife, Jean. How did you first approach them with the idea of a book? Well, it's it was a very interesting process. What was most challenging about it is it was really hard to actually find most of these people from the beginning. Um, one of the first people that I actually came across was uh, Marty Burke, uh, who was one of his uh, fellow uh, crew members um, uh, towards the last part of uh, J.D. McDuffie's career. And, uh, you know, I, I had uh, just had several email communications with him back in 2011 and uh it, it seemed like that was about as far as i was going to go with the research but then he gave me a couple other names and uh you know one thing led to another that you know every person i ran into had a couple more names and what was strange about it is that uh, well you know strange is maybe not the best word it, it was just 
it was nice that it came together so organically. Everybody was so eager to share their stories about JD and also point me in the direction of other people that uh, actually, you know, contacting Linda and I'm a gene actually came up towards the end of the process after I talked with so many other people. So, uh, you know, and, and, and again, they were both you know, extremely excited to, you know, share their stories as well. And, and, um, and, uh, it just, it, it just, it just came together like that. And at that point, you know, I, it almost felt I really had to write the book at that point because there was too much material to, uh, to go through that, uh, wouldn't work in any other form. In the research for every book, it seems like there are a few surprises that crop up along the way. What did you learn about JD McDuffie that maybe kind of took you by surprise? It seemed like every person I talked to had one thing that just, just absolutely just, just gave me a a wow factor on that. And, um, you know, uh, uh, talking with Marty Burke about, you know, them working together and, and, uh, um, you know, the potential of, I mentioned earlier about, about JD being a team owner, uh, you know, Marty had talked about the potential of, of starting to drive for JD, uh, after, uh, JD had retired, uh, later in his career. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, that circumstances of course, you know, didn't, uh, didn't work out quite that way. And, and, but they had come very close to that. Um, another one, was the uh, very uh, potential of him driving for another team, which again seemed like something that you know I, I wasn't sure that JD had ever considered. Uh, apparently, they had a deal that was starting to come together with Juni Donlevy in 1992, and uh, it, it uh, you know was going to come together, and it didn't quite happen. And um, talking about Jim Derhog that was racing him at the at the time of the, the tragic race at Watkins Glen, and that uh, Derhog had this 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 premonition that he just didn't want to pass him a certain way right before uh, the uh, the issue on the 70 car that led to the uh, the final accident uh, that claimed JD's life. Um, so many things that you know if you if if somebody just told you these things they'd think oh well you know you're just you're just making this up or something like that but no i mean you you fit these together with other stories and other um accounts and and fortunately the the um research with newspaper articles and stuff were able to kind of tie those together and say oh my gosh like that that was actually happening that actually fits with this and those were the amazing moments with that how long did research and writing take from the initial start to final publication i had been compiling my own research just of my own interest uh all the way back to about 2000 or 2001 Um, but that had been really just you know for my own interest and and just because again he was a figure that had popped up here and there and in my study of uh, underdogs and 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 just stories in nascar that that didn't get as many uh, accounts but um the actual work on the book uh which really the, the jim derhogs interview was really what really kicked that off uh wasn't until about 2016 so um it was it was uh, the the book itself took so little time really uh, about a year about a year and a half there uh just because i it, it plugged into so many other materials that i'd already collected at that point and it was really a matter of of adding an extra coat of paint of, of really you know tightening up the story and 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 giving it as much detail as i could and uh you know those are the details that that uh, that really made it uh, made it what i hope that uh, readers would certainly enjoy what would you like for readers to get out of your book who do you think readers will find jd mcduffie to be that's a very good question you know i i would have to go back to what linda told me um and and i'm a gene actually for that matter um right right from the first interview that i had uh, spoken to with both of them is that you know the common per- uh, perception and really the misconception about jd mcduffie is that he just ran junk that he just ran equipment that shouldn't have been out there and you know he was he was he was running too slow he was running non-competitively perhaps even considering him to be a start and park driver and none of those things are true um everything that i have uh, heard from so many people uh he was absolutely driving the very best he could he was getting the absolute most out of equipment i, I would almost describe it as almost magical is what he was able to uh, to do um several teams would close he would put pieces together and he would 
get the cars uh, competing to a point that he would beat other independents. Uh, it was it was described by many of them, including uh, Jimmy Means, that he was an extremely tenacious competitor all the way to the end of his career. And um, you know, and, and he was he was much more than you know a person that maybe you know wasn't the biggest name. Again, him not ever winning a race, the most uh, starts in his career without uh, winning a race, uh, the most last place finishes in his career. He was much more than his shortcomings. He was a, a very determined competitor. And again, you, you meant you asked about uh, Dale Earnhardt and comparing it to that. Um, very much as uh, you know, would put the Intimidator, um, you know, in in, uh, in his place as well. Um, you know, on the track, it's just it's just that some decisions in in terms of uh, deciding to be an independent uh, was the only reason that maybe the results didn't show exactly the same way as they did for Dale Earnhardt. You know, he had gotten hurt in the 1988 twin 125s for the 1988 Daytona 500. Uh, got burned pretty severely. What kept him going? Well, I think it's I think it's just the love of the sport, and this is something I feel that NASCAR is really trying to get its hands around even today. Um, and and it's something I think that uh, a lot of readers, both inside and outside the sport, will really uh, take from the book. It's it's so hard to actually describe what that love means and how deep it runs. Um, and I think even after writing the book, I. I can't fully answer that question and that's that's the one you know the one regret really in, in writing this is that you know the opportunity never came to to write about JD um, when he was alive and 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 when he was uh, competitive at the time um, you know my I didn't even really know who he was until about 2000 so um, to me he's always been you know the person that that lost his life at, at that time but again so many of these people that I talked to um, there's a little piece of that there and a little piece of that that tells you how much he actually cared about about racing and that even yes that that fire that terrible fire he had in 1988 um all he could think about was just how excited he would be to get back in that car again and just go out there and do the very best he could with what god gave him and um that's um that's really inspiring to me and and um even if i can't fully understand it i endeavoring to understand it as best i can because i think it it says a lot in the sport and and the people that made it for what it is you have spent so much time researching the story of jd mcduffie you've gotten to know his family his immediate family if you had the chance to sit down with jd what would you talk about what would you want to know that's oh, that's that's a good question. You know, the only the other thing that everybody keeps telling me is just how bashful JD was, and how um, you know s- some people always grasp with what word he, they would say if he was bashful or shy or something like that. If I sat down with him, I'm not sure if he would tell me um, as much as a lot of the other people um, that uh, that I've talked to. Um, some of the other interviews that I w- I've been able to collect. He's just a, just a man of few words, a, you know, the strong, silent type. But at the same time, I think, too, when I talk with Jimmy Means and and everybody was warning me that, OK, well, Jimmy's not going to tell you a whole lot, um, you know, and of course, you know, understandably, given that uh, he was right there when uh, when the accident happened and everything. But we talked in our first conversation for like an hour and a half. And to me, that feels about as close as I can grasp you know, here in, in, in the current times to what it would be like to interviewing JD and at least what I would hope, you know, and, and again, um, I, I would hope that if the interview did go that way, that I could really grasp the passion that drove him in that sport and, and what, what made it so real to him and, and what motivated him. And it would be interesting to know the answer to that question in his own words. Brock, I can't do this interview without mentioning Charlie Birch, who is a former Winston Cup scene photographer. So I can't do this interview <laughs> and not mention Charlie. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Charlie, first of all, a tremendous guy, a really, really cool guy. Uh, I had the very good fortune of staying with him and uh, his family at uh, up in New York during the Watkins Glen weekend last year. We had a great book signing up there at Smalley's Garage. He just he came in in a panic towards the very end of the uh, the book as it was coming together and was so worried that I'd finished uh, that I'd finished the book already and that he had he didn't have a chance to contribute to it. Um, he 
Second, perhaps only to really Linda McDuffie and Imogene themselves really provided the heart to the story. Um, he clearly cared so much for JD and wanted to do the very best uh, to help him out, especially during those last few years. You mentioned the, the fire at Daytona in 1988. That was one of his first exposures to it. Um, and, uh, you know, taking pictures for JD, trying to put some press kits together to help him out and, and help get the name out there. Um, he did what I'd like to believe I would have done if I had been around, you know, doing the media thing back then. Um, but, uh, you know, and then, and then tragically, um, was standing right there in the corner. You ask about another wow moment. He was actually standing in that corner at Watkins Glen, um, the day the accident happened and, and saw it happen right in front of him, took some of the only pictures, um, of, you know, of the accident that just stayed on his camera. And he never published a lot of those until this book. And I think that really goes to show, you know, the, the, how much, again, how much he cared for JD and, and how, um, you know, uh, um, it, it was how meaningful it was to me to be brought into the loop on this on this story here. Um, he he's uh, he's clearly cared about JD and cared about his legacy, and uh, and I'm I'm honored that uh, he entrusted me with the, the materials that he provided me because I really feel that added the, the whipped cream on top of the book here and really tying it all together and and understanding. Um, who JD was and and what his legacy means to so many. Brock, where can people pick this book up? So it is available uh, just about most every place. You can get it on uh, Amazon uh, and other uh, book retailers, as well as if you go to uh, my website at lastcar.info and find the uh, picture of the cover illustration on there. There's also details where you could order a copy from me personally, and I will be happy to uh, sign and personalize it on the website. Uh, I have it for uh, $22 on the uh, website there. And... Um, there's a few stores that have it across the country, but just check online there. Uh, Lastcar.info as well as Amazon are the best sources. And it's also available on audiobook, is it not? That's correct. Wow. That's correct. Thank you for reminding me. They had they, uh, Waldorf Publishing out of Texas work with a very small publisher. Uh, reminds me a lot of JD in that sense, actually. But they sprung for uh, uh, an audio um, an audiobook reader, and he did a fantastic job on that, too. And uh, it's definitely worth a listen. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Is there anything else you'd like to get across? Uh, yeah, uh, well, just to go a couple things. Well, first of all, I, I uh, again, thank you for having me on, and thank you also, and, and both yourself and, and uh, Mr. Wade for promoting my book earlier, um, uh, back when the book came out. That really, every bit of word that we could get uh, spread on this book has been absolutely helpful, um, you know, helpful for uh, for my publisher and for both myself personally. And um, there's just so many people I have to thank on this project. I know I'm going to forget names on here, but of course, uh, the McDuffie family, uh, Mike and Leslie Demers, who produced all of these uh, great fan club newsletters that gave all this insight uh, to uh, you know, the uh, JD's career, um, uh, Marty Burke, uh, the uh, Jerry Glenn, uh, so many of these other people. And you know, you'll meet all these people and more when you check out the book, and I, I definitely highly re- recommend it. Steve, buddy, old pal, old friend of mine, guess what? No, I can't lend you $5. <laughs> How about 10 <laughs> <laughs> We are at 45 reviews. All right. Written reviews on iTunes. Five more. Guess what happens? And I'm going to have to give away these books. When I first announced this thing, I said, nah, we might get 10 or 12. We're at 45. That's so, just great. I hope yeah. you're ready to part with your work. <laughs> and we've actually got two or three that I wanted to share. This one is entitled Amazingness. It says, I'm 15 years old, so I didn't get to see these times that my dad worked in. I'm not sure who his dad is, but evidently he worked in the sport. He goes on to say, I've learned so much about the history of our sport from this. Still Lankford. High Point, North Carolina. Steve, that right there. That's what it's all about. Is the money review because that is what we are about. We're here to remember the good times, maybe some of the bad times, and also we are here to reach out to new fans and maybe educate them about the passion that has gone into this sport for such a long time. That is absolutely correct. 
This one is headlined, The History of NASCAR. If you're all about history like myself, then the Scene Vault Podcast is the show that you need on your must-listen-to-each-week list. Rick and Steve bring it each week, taking you through some of the biggest moments in individuals who made a big impact on their time in NASCAR, and that's from Eddie Greer III, EG3. Way to go, EG3. We bring it. We bring it each week. (laughs) So finally, the third and final one that I wanted to share, it's entitled The Best Podcast. I like that. The Best Podcast. So why aren't you listening to the Scene Vault Podcast yet? The the behind-the-scenes info you get is top-notch. Rick, Steve, and their guests bring great stories to the table. Subscribe. If you love NASCAR and its history, this is what you need. And that's from Street Stock 429. So here's the deal. Five more written reviews on iTunes, and I will give away a copy of every NASCAR book I have ever written. That's, I think, six or seven books. It includes Second to None, the history of the NASCAR Bush Series. It includes NASCAR's Greatest Race. It includes Dell versus Daytona, Rockingham Speedway, and I think there are two or three others. (laughs) You know, I'm such a famous author now, I've forgotten all the books that I've written. Well, you know, I can sympathize. Age does things to a guy sometimes. So listeners, thank you very much for listening. Do go over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and written review. Follow us on Twitter at The Scene Vault. If you have any questions or comments, email us at scenevault at yahoo.com. Thank you so much for your support. Steve, thank you. Thanks to you too, Rick. And listeners, thank you most of all.